Well, good morning and welcome. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Whether you're joining us in the auditorium or online, thanks for tuning in with us today. I'm Bob Nienheis. I'm one of the pastors at Keystone, and I serve in the area of community care. And we're in week five of a series that we're calling Because You're Loved. It's an invitation to rethink your entire approach to religion because of the love that God has for you and has demonstrated for you in Christ Jesus. When we understand how much God loves us, when we get to really appreciate that, it changes everything for us. Over the past several weeks, we've learned that because we are loved by God, we don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to surrender to fear. We don't have to, to claim a judgmental attitude. And we don't have to give in to worry. Today we look at another topic that comes straight from the truth that God loves us. Today we look at the topic of forgiveness. I'm particularly excited about this because I know the power of forgiveness in my life. I know what it has done for us in our marriage. And I've seen it transform relationships as Betty Jo and I have met with couples and individuals and challenged them in this arena of forgiveness. I know that for some of you, however, this topic is extremely sensitive and troublesome. You've been deeply wounded by the actions or words of another person. And these wounds have left scars for you. And the idea of now forgiving that person is almost unthinkable. You say, I'm afraid that if I forgive them, it's like they get away with what they did to me. And I want them to hurt like they hurt me. And if I forgive them, I'm afraid they won't hurt. However, I am absolutely convinced that as human beings, we have a profound need to both receive forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. A profound need to both receive and grant forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jesus said some 2,000 years ago. Many of us have learned the words of the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you learned them in a confirmation class somewhere. Maybe you learned them in your home and were taught them at the table. Maybe you're like me and, and you learned them almost by osmosis as Sunday after Sunday after Sunday you repeated the Lord's Prayer in your church. What we likely didn't learn, however, is what Jesus said immediately following teaching the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. It's, it's almost like an addendum to one particular phrase in the Lord's Prayer, the one that we rattle through oftentimes without even thinking about, the one that goes, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is what Jesus said. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And we go, cool, I like that. And then he went on and said, but if you do not forgive others their sins... Your Father will not forgive you your sins. And we go, whoa. With great emphasis, Jesus is saying that if we deny forgiveness to other people, God will deny forgiveness to us. And if you're stunned by what Jesus just said, if you're stunned by those words, I think you're in really good company. I believe the disciples were also stunned by the idea that That, <laughs> forgiveness by God and our forgiveness of others 
are interdependent. Have you ever thought about it that way? That God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others are interdependent. You can't have one without the other. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, I told you that I thought the disciples were stunned by this idea as well. And sometime later, Peter asked a question that I believe reveals just how concerned he was about Jesus' statement concerning forgiveness. I think it had been brewing in his mind, and he's chewing on it. And I can imagine he and the disciples sitting around from time to time talking about it. And finally, he asks this question of Jesus. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's question shows his concern that, that Jesus' statement might be used by someone to abuse the idea of sinning some against someone without accountability. That they might do wrong, say bad things, and not feel responsible for it. And so he's trying to get a handle on things. He's the problem solver. And he suggests that maybe there's a limit to how many times you have to forgive someone. And I'm sure that Peter's proposal of seven times sounded really generous to him. Because after all, if you looked in the Jewish law, in the Talmud you would have found that you had to forgive someone three times. So Peter goes seven times, and he's saying, surely that's enough. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And immediately the calculators start running in our head. And we start thinking about this. Now, you need to know that the number seven signifies completeness. So Peter said seven, thinking that's enough. Now Jesus says 77 times to say in essence that there is no limit to forgiveness. No limit to forgiveness. The term Jesus uses when he says 77 times, sometimes it's translated 70 times seven or 490 but to focus on the precise numbers to miss Jesus' meaning entirely. So there's this New Testament scholar who puts it this way. This statement by Jesus is, oh, back one, is in the language of hyperbole, not of calculation. Those who are concerned as to whether the, fu- the figure should be 77 or 490 have missed the point. He goes on. There is no limit No place for keeping a tally of forgivenesses already used up. Peter's question was misconceived. And I love this statement. If one is still counting, one is not forgiving. If you are still counting how many times you must forgive and how many times you have forgiven, you're not forgiving. You're keeping score. Then, To make the case for this astounding claim that there is no limit to forgiveness, Jesus does what he he so often does, right? He tells a story. And here's the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Here's a man with a huge debt, 10,000 bags of gold. 
So Bible scholars have been fussing for years, spending a lot of time thinking about things that most of us don't think about. Like, how much money was that really? And so from what I've read, it ranges into the hundreds of millions of dollars to the maximum of $400 billion. It doesn't really matter if it's $100 billion or $100 million. It's beyond his ability to pay. It's just not going to happen. Jesus is essentially saying that this is an infinite, immeasurable debt that this man owes to the king. And the king demands that he pays it, which he is never, ever going to be able to do. The customary way to handle bankruptcy and debts that cannot be repaid in ancient cultures was to sell that individual and his family into slavery and try to recoup at least some of what you have lost. And that's exactly what the king does. He says, I will sell you and your wife and your children and your possessions, and, and I'll try to gain back some of the losses that I have, even though it will not be enough. It won't even come close. And when he does that, here's what happens. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. I want you to keep that, that statement in mind because it's going to come back in just a few moments. Be patient, and I will pay back everything. Now, when he falls on his knees, that's an act showing deep emotion, deep humility, and sorrow for what he has done that is wrong. And he begs the king to be patient. I will pay back everything, even though that expression of regret and the offer of restitution is impossible. Even the most sincere effort on his part will not be able to generate the kind of money that he owes the king. Still, the king does this. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In response to his pleas, the king cancels the debt, wipes it off, says, it's done, consider it paid. And he lets him go, freeing him from his obligation. And you go and think, wow, that's really cool. All is good now, right? Everything's settled. It's all done. We're good to go. He's forgiven. But that's not the end of the story. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, get this, be patient with me and I will pay it back. We've heard that before. That's what the first servant said to the king. That was what he promised to do. But what happens? The servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The servant goes out and has a confrontation with a man who owes him a few bucks, just a paltry sum of money. But the forgiven servant grabs him, begins to choke him, and threatens him, and demands that he pay back that money. And this second servant responds using the same plea that the first servant had just made to the king. But when he doesn't produce the money, the second servant says, away with you, into prison. You owe me, I want it. 
Jesus continues. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. When the king hears what has happened, he called the first servant in and says, in effect, how can anyone who has experienced the forgiveness I have given you, the lavish mercy I have poured out on you, how can anyone be so cruel and so ungenerous toward others, given what you've just been given? And with that, he hands the first servant over to the torturers, who will, as we might say, apply pressure to the servant and his family to produce the money owed the king. And then Jesus ends with this chilling statement. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Well, the meaning of the story is not hard to figure out. Let's put the pieces in place. The king, that's God, God himself. The servant, that's us. He represents all of us. And the bags of gold, the 10,000 bags of gold, they're the infinite debt that we owe God. You see, God created us, and he sustains us for every second of our lives. In response, we owe him unending love, dependence, and obedience. But we do not give this to him. There's not a person listening to me right now. There's not a person in this world who does not receive the mercy of God in some way. Yet the way we too often treat other human beings falls infinitely short of the generous mercy with which God treats us. Now, with that story fixed into our minds, let me bring home some things that you and me need to think about. And we're going to start with a question. What really is forgiveness? Let me just pause for a second. We sometimes teach our kids when they're growing up, when they do something that, you know, they get in a fight with their brother or sister, tell them you're sorry. And what do the kids do? I'm sorry. Okay. Give them a hug. All right, now, be good to each other. That's not forgiveness. That's simply an expression of, I regret what I did, kind of. It calls for no response from the other person. We're not talking about, I'm sorry. We're talking about forgiveness, which is something much deeper, much more significant. In this story, the king, who is God, does four things that help us to answer the question, what really is forgiveness? So what are those four things? The king, first of all, has the servant brought to him, and the actual debt is named, 10,000 bags of gold. And the first thing we need to understand about forgiveness 
is that forgiveness begins with telling the truth. It begins with telling the truth. It requires the exposure of the offense. What has been done that has been offensive? Actions or words. And a confession that, yes, I did this. There's no cover-up, no excuses, no have-truths. It's an honest expression of the truth. That's where it begins. You cannot begin to practice forgiveness until we have clearly identified the offense and gotten away from any excuses to try to make it okay. Second, the king took pity on the servant, which tells us that forgiveness involves understanding the other person's situation. Now you're beginning to realize that forgiveness is not always an easy thing. We're not talking about what's easy. We're talking about what's right. What does forgiveness look like? This is not natural to under, try to understand the other person's situation. It's not something that we automatically want to do. Everything in us wants to concentrate only on how bad the wrongdoer is and how much he deserves to suffer for what he did to me. That's our natural reaction. But the king, who represents God in this story that Jesus tells, sees the offender not just as a villain to be punished, but as a human being with his own fears and regrets. And instead of seeing, seeing this person who has offended us as someone who deserves to get whatever I can dish out to him, we seek to begin to understand this person. That's what it meant when the king took pity on him. He began to understand that this debt could never be repaid. This man did not have the capacity to repay that debt. He sought to understand him. And when the king canceled the debt, third, we find ourselves at the very heart of forgiveness. Forgiveness means surrendering the right to repayment or revenge. Ouch. When I forgive someone, I surrender the right to get back what I've given to them or to get revenge for what they did to me. When the king cancels the debt, he is choosing to absorb the loss himself. And forgiveness means that we want to make someone hurt like we hurt. We choose not to do it. When we want to make someone hurt like they have made us hurt, we choose not to do it, and that's hard. We want to think that by staying angry, we're giving that person who hurt us what she deserves. In reality, by staying angry, by not forgiving, you are allowing her actions to continue to hurt you every time you think about it again. Every time. I put it this way. Not being willing to forgive is like you drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. Not being willing to forgive is like you drinking poison, hoping that that person dies. Finally, the king chooses to let him go. The man is no longer a debtor. He's no longer an abuser of the king's trust. But the servant now becomes a citizen again, a valued servant in the service of the king, which tells us that forgiveness leads to reconciliation. We see this as the relationship between the king and the servant is restored. But this part of the story will undoubtedly 
undoubtedly raise questions for some of you who have concerns about justice for wrong that you've experienced. I'll tell you this. I do not believe that forgiveness and justice are incompatible. I don't. If you were abused by an adult when you were a child, forgiving that person for the pain that they have caused you does not mean that you cannot pursue justice. If you have been unjustly terminated by your employer, forgiving your supervisor for the wrong done to you does not mean that you're not able to pursue justice. Forgiveness and justice are not incompatible. In fact, I would say this. If you don't forgive the person who has hurt you, your justice-seeking will likely be more about revenge and less about justice. You have to begin with forgiveness. That's where it starts. In this story, Jesus does not descend into a level of detail that answers all of our, but what about questions? What about my situation? You don't understand my situation. Jesus is giving us principles here. He is not seeking to answer every what if, what about question. I will tell you, if there is need for that kind of conversation, then talk to me. Send me an email. Sit down with Betty Jo or me, and we'll talk to you about the value of forgiveness and the place of forgiveness, even in the most heinous of situations. But don't just harbor your unforgiveness. Jesus is telling us that anyone who truly forgives, as the king does, must be open to reconciliation, to the restoration of the relationship. But that will ultimately depend on the response of the one being forgiven. And that's part of the tragedy of the story that Jesus tells. As we see in this story, because the servant does not respond to the king's forgiveness with genuine repentance and a changed life, the relationship with the king breaks down again. And that's real. If there is no repentance, if there is no changed life, there probably will not be a full restoration of the relationship. But the forgiveness comes first. I believe the most fundamental lesson of this story is this. God's forgiveness of us should change our hearts so that we will forgive others as God has forgiven us. Or, in other words, as the big idea says, loved people are to be forgiving people. You and I, loved by God, are to live lives marked by God's forgiveness extended through us to others. We know we are loved by God because he sent his son Jesus to this earth to die in payment for our sin. And when we trust Jesus, we receive forgiveness and a new life, a life that then is to be marked by forgiveness. I'm going to ask the band to come back out on the stage and as a reminder of God's love for us and of his forgiveness of us, we're going to end our service with communion. Our forgiveness was costly. To secure the forgiveness that you and I have experienced, Jesus surrendered his body and shed his blood. He died to pay our penalty. 
This act of love that he demonstrated compels us to forgive others in gratitude for the forgiveness that we have been given. In just a moment, as those who have been forgiven, you're invited to come to to one of the stations that we'll have across the front and across the back where you can take a wafer and dip it into the juice. And as you place it into your mouth, to be reminded then of God's great love for you. And then as you return to your seat, I challenge you to think about the forgiveness that you have been given and to consider if there is anyone in your life who needs to receive your forgiveness. The band is going to lead us with some music while we take communion together. And when you are ready, I invite you to make your way to one of the stations here or in the back. And after you've taken communion, please return to your seat as we close the service together.
Stand with me, please, as we close this service. We are deeply loved. Loved so much that God would send his son to take upon himself our infinite immeasurable debt and in Jesus Christ we have forgiveness full, rich and free as those who have been forgiven how can we not be forgiving of others Father, thank you for this story of Jesus that when we stop and think about it, digs so deeply into our hearts and our resistance to give to others what you have so graciously given to us. May we truly be a loved people who are a forgiving people. May your forgiveness in us change us so that our lives reflect your grace and mercy in the relationships we have. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for walking with us as we seek to forgive others. We do it in your strength and in gratitude for your love and forgiveness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. If you need someone to talk with you, pray with you, encourage you in this journey, we've got some folks over here underneath the screen. Please stop by and let them encourage you and pray with you. Thank you.